good to be here. It is uh, good to see some familiar faces as well as get to meet some new ones this morning. And if you have your Bible with you, I invite you to turn with me uh, to Psalm chapter 3. Psalm chapter 3. This morning I want to look at this psalm and consider the topic of trusting God. Trusting God. I want to answer the question, how can we trust God in the midst of a fallen world? How can we trust God amidst difficulty and pain and confusion? And so let's read Psalm chapter 3 to begin our time. Psalm chapter 3 says, A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I awoke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. Bow with me in a word of prayer. Father God, we come before you this morning recognizing, Lord, that sometimes it is difficult to trust. Lord, that sometimes in the midst of chaos and confusion, in the midst of our pain and our suffering, Lord, we fail to trust you. Lord, help us as we look at Psalm 3 to trust you to learn how we can better trust you and better praise you no matter what we face in this world. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, perspective is a a powerful thing. Your perspective dictates how you handle the circumstances that you face in life. An example of this is illustrated in the life of of John Owen. John Owen was a pastor in in the 17th century, and he was a man who experienced much hardship. In 1644, John Owen married his wife, and over the course of their marriage, they had 11 children. But tragically, all but one of them died in infancy. The one child who who lived past birth, died as a young adult. And a few years later, Owen's wife passed away. This man experienced great trial and and hardship. And I think as I read that description, I think you know what it feels like to experience 
trial and hardship. But despite his circumstances, Owen's perspective, the view, the lens through which he viewed all of his life was shaped by God's word. Yes, there was pain and sorrow and tears, but he also had a a perspective that trusted God. When considering what scripture wrote about suffering, he said this, when the hearts of men are ready to quake, when they see all things about them filled with dread and terror, and when it seems that all help is far away, it is their duty to take their thoughts from all outward and present appearances and to fix them on the presence of God. You see, John Owen faced much suffering. But you see, he could walk through that difficulty trusting God because his perspective was was not on his outward circumstances, but instead his eyes were fixed upon God. And that's the lesson that we learn from Psalm chapter 3. That's the the takeaway today. You see, from from his cry of pain in verse 1 to his declaration of praise in verse 8, David's circumstances did not change. His suffering did not end. But his perspective did. You see, during his trial, David recounted truths about God. He reminded himself about who God is and what God has done. And as a result, he was able to trust God amidst his trials. He was able to trust God amidst his trials. And I think you feel trials often. The psalmist recognizes it. This is the third song in Israel's songbook. Psalm 1 teaches us how we're to live. That what the blessed life is. Psalm 2 says even when bad things happen, God is on his throne. But then the third song that Israel would sing is a song of trusting God amidst difficulty. To understand the background of Psalm 3, we need to understand the life of David a little better. David, if you remember in 2 Samuel chapter 11, sinned against Bathsheba and murdered Uriah. As a result of that, 2 Samuel 12, Nathan the prophet rebuked David. And although David repented of his sin, was forgiven by the graciousness of God, Nathan the prophet said, the sword will not depart from your house. There will be trouble and trials that you face because of your sin. These consequences were seen in 2 Samuel 13. Amnon sinned against Tamar. And then in in an act of revenge... Absalom murdered Amnon. Fearing the repercussions of that, Absalom ran away. Spent three years in exile 
fearing what might happen to him. When that time ended, David invited Absalom back. But you see, it wasn't the joyful reunion that you might think. It wasn't the prodigal son running home to his father and receiving a warm hug. Because in 2 Samuel 15, Absalom decides to plan a rebellion against David, a coup to make himself king. And you see, Absalom would campaign outside the city gate, and Absalom was a good-looking man. 2 Samuel says that there was no one in Israel as handsome as Absalom. Like Saul, he was good-looking. Like Saul, the people looked up to him, if you will. He looked like a king. But you see, not only was he a handsome man, he was a politician. 2 Samuel chapter 15 Absalom would stand by the gate of the palace and he would hear the the grumblings of the people. And Absalom would listen to the people and he would say, See, your claims, they are good and right. But there's no man designated by the king to hear you. And then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were a judge in the land. Then every man with his dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. Verse 5 of 2 Samuel 15 says, Whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Like a true politician, Absalom would go amongst the people and he was shaking hands and kissing babies and it worked. He stole the hearts of the people of Israel. Recognizing this, David, the king, seeing what his son was doing, ran, fearing not an army of a foreign nation, not something that he had experienced before, but rather fearing his own son. Second Samuel says he walked up the Mount of Olives weeping. What's the point of that? Why is that important to know from Psalm chapter 3? Psalm chapter 3 is what David penned amidst this experience. You see, David understands trials and trouble. David understands difficulty and despair. So Psalm 3 is his personal song of sorrow. But Psalm 3 is is a song for you and me. You see, David is lamenting the difficulties that we face in life. It's feelings that we relate to. Psalm 3 expresses our deepest emotions and it puts into words the situations that sometimes we can't. The pain that we feel that sometimes we just don't know how to express. Each of us in this room understands pain and sorrow. We've experienced 
a fallen world, whether it's affliction or, or slander, life in a fallen world is full of trouble. We understand trials and difficulties, and so Psalms like Psalm 3 resonate with our hearts. Psalm chapter 3 is a, a psalm of lament. But Psalm 3 is not merely a lament that it expresses pain and sorrow. Psalm 3 is a song about trusting God. Because in our pain and in our sorrow, we don't stay there. Pain and sorrow are real. Pain and sorrow are, are feelings that, that we express. And that the psalmist says is natural to express. But you see, Psalm 3 is given to us to help us to trust God in the midst of a falling, fallen world. Psalm 3 is meant to reorient our hearts, to, to reset our thinking when it feels like the walls of life are crashing down on us. So with our time remaining, I want to look at three steps to reorient our hearts so that we can trust God in the midst of a fallen world. Three steps to reorient our hearts so that we can trust God. And the first, the first step to trusting God is to take your trouble to the Lord. The first step to trusting God amidst trouble is to take your trouble to the Lord. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. It says, O oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Three times in the first two verses, David describes his adversaries as many. His foes are great. His troubles are many. David's circumstances are painful. And it seems like his trial is getting worse and worse by the minute. Notice what his adversaries are saying in verse 2. It says, Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. As David is facing the threat of death, uh, the temptation from his enemies is for him to abandon his trust in God, to believe that God could not and would not deliver him from his trials. But despite the pain, despite the taunts of the enemy, where does David go during his trials? David takes his problems to the Lord. We sang about that this morning, didn't we? Fixing our eyes upon the Lord amidst trials. You see, amid difficulties, our first reaction must not be, what can I do to fix this? 
our first reaction must not be, the Lord will not deliver me from this situation. Our reaction must not be, you know, I've sinned too much for the Lord to forgive me. Instead, facing trials, our reaction to difficulties must be like David, oh Lord. We must take our trouble to the Lord. We must cry out to Him. We must run to our Savior. And on what basis does David cry out to God? You see, David cries out to God not on the basis of anything that he has done. Not because he's done anything to earn the right to approach God. He comes to God not because he has achieved access to him. But he comes to God on the basis of the promises of God in his word. Because of the covenant that that God made with David in 2 Samuel 7, that he would protect him, that he would not forsake him, that he would watch over David. And as believers, in Jesus Christ, we come to God. Not on the basis of anything we have done, but because of the work of Christ to cleanse us of our sin, to forgive us of our iniquity, and to provide us access to God. In salvation, we not only have the forgiveness of sins, but we are adopted into God's family. We can run to Him in our trouble. Cry out to God in your trouble. If you're here today and you do not know the Lord, cry out to Him for salvation, for forgiveness. Because you see, more significant than the pain and the problems that you face every day because of sin, the more significant problem is the problem we all face because of our sin. That the wages of sin is death. That the Bible says that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God and we deserve eternal punishment. But the good news of the gospel is that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, whether your trial is in trouble is a spiritual trial and trouble, or whether your trial and trouble is physical, all of us are to run to God. And though the problems of life don't go away even after salvation, we see that in the life of David, those who believe in Christ are delivered from what? From our ultimate problem. That our sins demand punishment from God. You see, friends, when life in a fallen world feels unbearable, when the last 18 months just seem to be a trial and a trouble and a headache and a hardship day after day, we must heed the words of 1 Peter 5 and cast all 
our anxieties on Him because He cares for you. How do we reorient our hearts to trust God in a fallen world? We take our troubles to the Lord. We take our troubles to the Lord. Second, the second step to to reorienting our hearts, to, to resetting our thinking amidst trials and troubles, is to renew your confidence in the Lord. To renew your confidence in the Lord. And we see this in verses 3 and 4. David says, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and He answered me from His holy hill. You see, between verses 1 and 2 and 3 and 4, there is a dramatic shift. David has lifted his eyes off his trials and his troubles, and he has fixed them on the Lord. And this is so important for us to see. It's so practical. You see, in verses 1 and 2, David is overwhelmed. But as soon as he places his eyes on the Lord, something changes. His circumstances haven't changed. From verse 1 to verse 8, David's trouble hasn't gone away. But his perspective has changed. David has turned his attention from his enemies to his God. How often are our eyes fixed? On our trouble and not on the Lord. You see, friends, when, when our eyes are on our troubles, we are overwhelmed. But when our eyes are lifted up and fixed on God, we have trust in Him. You see, how we handle life depends so much, significantly, on our perspective. You might remember in Numbers chapter 13, 12 spies are are sent out to scout out the land of Canaan. And after 40 days of scouting, they come back to give a report. Ten of the spies were overwhelmed by the strength and the size of the Canaanites. So much that they said, Numbers 13.31, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. They were overwhelmed by the strength and the size of the Canaanites. But two of the spies, Caleb and Joshua, said this, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are able to overcome it. Let me ask you this. What was the difference between these two reports? Both groups saw the same things. They both saw the land. They both saw the giants. What's the difference? 
James Montgomery Boyce says it this way, The ten looked only at the giants and forgot about God, with the result that they seemed in their own eyes to shrink to the size of grasshoppers. The two kept their eyes on God, and for them it was the giants who appeared small. You see, when you stare at your problems, your problems seem massive and daunting. But when you take your eyes off of your circumstances and place them on Christ, you can rest knowing that God is in control. So how are we to trust God in the midst of difficulty? We are to place our eyes on Him and remember who He is. The lesson that we learn here from David is that we must call to mind what we know to be true about God. You see, David renews his confidence in the Lord by reminding himself of truths about God. Look at verse 3. David begins by reminding himself that God is a protecting God. He says in verse 3, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. David's a warrior. He understands the different shields that would be used in military battle. But he doesn't use one of those shields here. He invents, if you will, his own term, his own shield, of a shield that would protect him on all sides, that no matter where the enemies came from, David would be safe because God is his protector. One author said God was the only defense that David needed against his numerous adversaries. If God was his defense, who could harm him? Believer, God is our shield. We can trust God in the midst of trials because He is our protector. And when life and when the trials of life hurt, we can know that He is our ultimate protection because our salvation is secure in Him. And we can say, like the Apostle Paul in, in that great chapter of Romans chapter 8, that I am sure that neither death nor life, nor things present nor things to come, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. David reminds himself that God is a protecting God. He is a shield about him. Second, David reminds himself that God is a sufficient God. Look again at verse 3. David says, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. David calls God my glory. And normally we think of us giving God glory. We're going to sing to God and we're going to give God glory. Glory. But here, 
In verse 3, David says that God is his glory. That word glory, it, it, it means weightiness. It means significance. It means satisfaction. And see what David is saying here. David is running for his life. He has lost everything. He's lost his kingdom, his crown, his throne. He's lost all of his comforts. But God is still his glory. You see, David realizes that his significance was not in his kingship. But his significance is in God. He found his satisfaction not in his circumstances, but in his God. Even though he had lost everything, he had his relationship with God, and so he had everything that he needed. He realizes that his satisfaction and his significance is not in his difficulty. It's not in his loss but it's in his God. Ask yourself, where do you find satisfaction? Where do you place your glory? What is that one thing that, that if the trials of life took it from you, you would say, I, I can't go any farther. What's that one thing that you say, if I only had this, I would have enough. You see, as Christians, our glory is in Christ. The warning of Romans chapter 1 is that the temptation of this world is to exchange the glory of God for something else. That we would put our satisfaction, that we would put our, really our safety, our, our sense of comfort in something else. But the reminder we get here from, from David is that our glory is God. That we must say with the Apostle Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Christ is my glory. You see, David teaches us that if Christ is your glory, when the trials of this world come, when life in a fallen world, takes everything else you have, then Christ is still your glory. That Christ is sufficient. That Jesus is all you need. And that amidst your trial and trouble, you can say with the hymn writer, it is well, it is well with my soul. Because God is my glory. That's what we see in the life of David. Third, David says God is not only a protecting God and a sufficient God, but God is also a restoring God. A restoring God. Look again at the end of verse 3. David says, My glory and the lifter of my head. You see, in ancient times, kings would humiliate their enemies by placing their foot on their neck. The helpless and vulnerable defeated king would rest under 
the foot of the one who beat him. This phrase, the lifter of my head, is is an expression to, to restore someone who's cast down. This is the phrase that, that Joseph told the cupbearer in the book of Genesis when he said, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. David calls God the lifter of my head. He's expressing confidence here that God can raise the humble and abase the mighty. You see, David here is confident that he would not be humiliated by Absalom, but that David would honor him. Here he's reminding himself that God is in control and that as the sovereign king, God can restore David to the throne if he wills. And by reminding ourselves that God is sovereign, we renew our confidence in the Lord amidst our trouble. The sovereignty of God helps us to walk through our trials. And ultimately, as believers, we know that amid our suffering, that God will one day lift us up out of this fallen world, that He will glorify us, and that we will be given resurrection bodies. You see, David is just reminding himself of who God is so that he would place his hope and his trust in God. And in verse 4, there's one more truth that he reminds himself of, and that is God is an accessible God. God is an accessible God. Look at verse 4. He says, I cried aloud to the Lord, and He answered me from His holy hill. David cries out to God in prayer, and God answers him from His holy hill, from Mount Zion, that place where the Ark of the Covenant symbolized the presence of God. What's David saying? David is saying, though I am far from the Ark of the Covenant, Though I am far from the presence of God, I can cry out to God, and no matter where I am, He can answer me. Friends, God is accessible. God is accessible in your trials when the difficulties of life come. Loneliness, an unfair supervisor at work, when you lose your job, when the phone rings and it's cancer, when the child that you love doesn't make it to delivery, you can cry out to God because He is accessible. And you can renew your confidence in Him by reminding yourselves who God is. And just real briefly look at the result of David's renewed confidence. He says, I laid down and slept. Verse 5, I awoke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. One commentator said, David sleeps 
like a baby. And I'm coming to learn that that phrase can sometimes mean different things. But I'm sure reading this psalm, it's the good version. David slept. And it seems like such a weird response to running for your life. But you see, David had such trust in God that he could take a nap. Charles Spurgeon said, it's the the sovereignty of God. That fact that God is in control. That is the pillow that I lay my head on. That gives me rest at night, giving me perfect peace. That was the peace that David experienced when he renewed his trust in the Lord. When he fixed his eyes, not on his trials, but on the character of God. And here we see, and then in verse 7 to 8, a third directive, a, a third way that we can trust God in the midst of our trials. First, we are to take our troubles to the Lord. Second, we are to renew our confidence in the Lord. And then finally, we are to place our hope in the Lord. We are to place our hope in the Lord. Look at verses 7 and 8. David says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. These words can be rather uncomfortable to us. This is a song. This is a prayer. And we don't normally pray like this. We don't normally sing songs about breaking someone's teeth. I think rightfully so. But there's a reason why David can pray this prayer. You see, to strike someone on the cheek was an insult, much like it is today. And removing the teeth, that phrase was either used to remove the teeth from a wild animal so that it wouldn't be able uh, to cause any harm, that it wouldn't be able to bite any longer. Or the phrase was also sometimes used as punishment given to someone who would lie or slander another person. Much worse than a bar of soap. David is asking God for his enemies to be insulted. For them to no longer be able to harm him and slander him. But you see, David is not praying for God to punish someone he's mad at. This isn't revenge against someone who cuts you off on the 405. Instead... David is praying as God's anointed king, as God's representative on earth. And David is asking God to act justly. He says, God, you are a God of justice. What is happening is unjust. Act justly. You see, David is confident that God will act justly. He says, you strike all my enemies. He doesn't say, you will strike. He says, you strike. 
It's as if the outcome is already complete. David is placing his hope, his trust in the Lord. But how does this apply to us today? How does a verse about striking my enemies on the cheek apply to us today? What can we take from these verses? Well, we find application to these verses when we remember the character and the nature of God. When we remember that God is holy and righteous and just, and realizing that God is holy, we realize He must punish wickedness. For God to to one day set up the new heavens and the new earth, a kingdom free from sin and death, from pain and from sorrow, God must punish all sin. And that includes our own. The sins that we commit daily against Him. And that's why we need the cross. Because on the cross, God satisfies the demands of His justice by punishing Jesus for the sins that we have committed. Though justice of God, though the justice of God should be against us, though it should mean that we are all punished in hell, through the grace of God, through the forgiveness of sins in Christ, we're cleansed. We're not punished. We are forgiven. And that means that we can place our hope in the Lord, not only for our salvation, not only for the forgiveness of our sins, but we can place our hope in the Lord for vindication, knowing that God will one day right every wrong, that God will one day judge the wicked. And we can say with Paul, in the words of Romans 12, 9, we can say, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. See, David didn't take vengeance into his own hands. He trusted in God. And we can trust in God amidst our difficulty, knowing that God will right all wrongs. And understanding these realities, we can say with David in verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessing be on your people. That verse is as true for us as it was for David. Salvation is of the Lord. There's nothing that we can do to save us from our sins. And ultimately, whether it's deliverance from our difficulty or salvation from the effects of sin, salvation is of the Lord. And this salvation comes not through David, but through another son of David. This son, unlike Absalom, was sinless and perfect. But like David, this son knew pain and trials. Like David, Jesus was rejected as king. 
Like David, Jesus walked up the Mount of Olives weeping. Like David, Jesus' enemies taunted him while on the cross. They said, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. And yet, amid difficulty and despair, how did Jesus respond? 1 Peter 2.23 He responded with perfect trust in God that when He was reviled He did not revile in return. When He suffered He did not threaten but He continued entrusting Himself to the One who judges justly. Jesus went to the cross and suffered for the sins that we would commit, that if we repent and believe in Him, if we would put our trust in Him, we receive everlasting life. So how do we trust God in the midst of a fallen world? We take our trouble to the Lord. We cry out to God in prayer. We renew our confidence in the Lord by reminding ourselves of who He is. And we place our hope in Him, knowing that one day He will right all wrongs. And amidst trials and trouble, difficulty and despair in your life, you can run to God, trusting totally in Him. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we do thank You. Lord, that in You we can trust. Lord, that we can trust You for salvation, for the forgiveness of all of our sins. And Lord, that we can trust You amidst the trials of this life. Lord, help us each day. Lord, give us the strength to trust You when our flesh so often fails. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.